welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com podcasts. In a speech to the Heritage Foundation last week, Attorney General Jeff Sessions lamented about a string of court losses blaming the losing decisions on judicial activism. An activist judge has traditionally been defined as one who goes beyond the law in a given case and injects his or her personal opinion or policy preferences or judicial rulings. This improperly takes the policy-making prerogative away from the democratically accountable branches. Joining me is Charles Jay, a professor at Indiana University's Marist School of Law. So people blame the umpire in baseball, the referee in football, and the judge in court. And there have been a slew of opinions against the administration. But is it correct to say that judges who've been ruling against the administration are activists who are making policy? Not necessarily. Uh, I think that, that that complaint is going to be one that is always in, in play, and uh, sometimes it's true. But uh, I think it's also important to understand that we're talking about a string of defeats that the administration has faces, faced that's, that are coming from Republican and Democratic appointees alike. And, uh, you know, and I think it's a little simplistic to suggest that the reason that, that these defeats are occurring is, is because uh, of the ideology of the judges involved rather than because uh, the law is against the administration. Let's talk about, in in a lot of these cases, issues like sanctuary cities, DACA, transgender service in the military, the administration and federal agencies have changed positions from the prior administration. And they, according to the judges, they haven't given a good enough explanation. Do you agree with that? Yes, I do. And I think that that for the most part, you know, whether, whether there is a constitutional justification for changes in policy or not is, is critical, uh, because we are talking about, you know, in effect, I mean, I'm using discrimination in the small d sense of the word, but, but there, these are, uh, measures that are being, uh, felt, uh, disproportionately by folks who are transgendered, folks who are immigrants, folks who are, you know, and, and, and the like, and, and so, to the extent that, that the Equal Protection Clause and the Due Process Clause protects them, and it does, uh, the explanation for why these changes are being made and whether they're being made for a purpose that falls within the zone of constitutional is, is front and center uh, to, the judge's, to the judge's job. Six years ago, you wrote an article for the Cornell Law Review entitled, Can the Rule of Law Survive Judicial Politics? So this is not a new concern, I take it, then. No, and I think what's important is to understand that that we, we see a, a complete, uh, almost de- disintegration of norms at the Supreme Court appointment process level, where one can fairly argue that Supreme Court justices who hear 80 ideologically charged cases a year are indeed you know, inevitably going to be influenced by their ideology and in trying to figure out what the right 
answer is to open-ended questions that are difficult to answer and that are ideologically charged. What we learn about lower court judges is that it's a very different ballgame. There's nowhere near the evidence that the average judge in the average district is deciding cases in ideological ways because those issues rarely arise, because when they do arise, the judge is subject to the precedent of the Supreme Court. Um, and so, yeah, I think we do have uh, a problem with judges being you know, ideological and and the perception that when they are ideological, that they're somehow doing something uh, that isn't appropriate. And sometimes I think that's true. But to say, that, and, and it's something to be worried about, partly because we, you know, we, we like to pretend that judges aren't ideological at all uh, when they can be. But uh, that sort of issue is most acute when it comes to the Supreme Court. And what what information we have suggests it's a very different, uh, a different world uh, among the lower courts. Despite the fact that the justices, all the justices, including Chief Justice John Roberts, says that the Supreme Court is not partisan and is independent. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that's a really good point. I think the problem here uh, is that the, the, the Supreme Court sort of seems hell-bent to preserve a kind of fiction, which is that ideology doesn't matter to, to us at all. Um, and the reality of it is that when you have five to four decisions over and over again in which you can clearly see uh, voting blocks along ideological grounds, something is going on there. And I think that a little bit of, of candor would be, would be helpful. I am not suggesting that anyone on the Supreme Court routinely says, you know, I don't give a damn about the law. What I care about uh, is, is whether you know, my, my partisan inclinations become law. Uh, it seems to me that these folks begin their legal education in law school, where they are trained to take law seriously, but they confront these very difficult questions where, you know, there are two plausible interpretations of, say, the First Amendment, and conservatives and liberals will both be doing their best to apply the law, and they will both be bringing to bear their understanding of the law, their backgrounds, experience, their educations, in an effort to figure out which interpretation is correct. And it's inevitable that their ideological orientation, their worldview, will influence that uh, that interpretation and to my way of thinking that's not something to be ashamed of it's okay they're doing their best to follow the law but let's not pretend that ideology has nothing to do with what happens because the american public looks at it and they know better charles you, you've studied this for a long time and when you look at the supreme court is the court of recent years stuck with the bigger issues because the congress is not acting as much as it should? Sometimes that can be the case. I think it's, it's more, to me, it's more likely back in the 19th century, the Supreme Court had an average of 1,200 cases on its docket at a given point in time. And most of those were routine, grinded out, correct the errors of the lower court kinds of cases. So if you had, you know, 1,150 uh, routine cases and 50 controversial ones, it created the perception that the court was basically just doing its job. Uh, over the years, the court has limited its jurisdiction to cases it decides to hear, and right now it hears fewer than 80 cases a year, and those tend to be the ones where the circuits can't agree, where the issues are, are very heavily charged, and so I think it cre that's what really creates the perception that the court is a largely ideological body, even though even though within that, that sphere, half the cases are decided by consensus, half the cases are unanimous decisions, but we don't hear about those because they're too boring.
you know? All right. Thanks so much. That's Charles Jay. He's a professor at Indiana University, Morris School of Law, and Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Elena Kagan have also pointed out that many of the decisions of the court are not five to four, but they are on a lot of mundane issues, a lot of administrative law, things like that. On Friday, the Justice Department brought the first criminal charges over meddling in this year's midterm elections, charging a Russian woman with conspiring to interfere in both the 2016 elections and the midterms. Speaking with CBS News, former Assistant Attorney General John Carlin said Russia is spending millions to undermine U.S. elections. Joining me is Brad Moss, a partner at Mark Zaid. So, Brad, these charges were brought by prosecutors in the Eastern District of Virginia, not, not by Mueller's prosecutors, but she was an accountant for the company owned by one of the Russian oligarchs indicted by Mueller in February. So if you can keep track of that, tell us more about the charges and the seeming disconnect between which office is handling them. Sure. So the charges are actually rather simple and straightforward. It's conspiracy to defraud the United States. That's a federal provision in criminal law that allows the U.S. government to prosecute someone if they find a way to interfere in the government's lawful administration of its duties. In this case, uh, administering federal elections and the ability for the American voter to elect who's going to represent them in Congress and as the president. So with respect to this particular foreign national, this uh, individual whose name I cannot pronounce properly. I'll I'll say Elena um, Kushayanova. We'll try that. I will let you handle that one, absolutely. With 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 respect to Elena, she was basically the accountant. She was the bookkeeper for this entire project being run out of Russia that was working with the, the uh, Russian oligarch who had ties to the Kremlin and who had these companies in the United States, Concord Management, that have also been t- brought into uh, some of the litigation brought by the Mueller team for crimes, all tied, all linked to this issue with the Russian disinformation campaign, both in 2016, which is when it was in full force, but also what they've continued to do over the last two years leading up to the midterms that are now in 15 days. And it's this extensive effort to create proxy service, to create fake accounts, to spread disinformation, anything and everything they can do to defraud the United States and prevent American voters from having correct and accurate information when they go to the voting booth in 15 days and decide who's going to represent them in Congress. So that was who they brought the charges on. She's the she's the money. She's the one who handled the ledgers, who itemized everything that this entire team of Russian trolls was overseeing. And the reason it wasn't done by Mueller's team, as far as I can tell, and this goes back to the DOJ doing things properly, is because of the narrow scope of his mandate, this doesn't necessarily fall specifically within the question of whether there was collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russian nationals. So when he came across the information he had, it was filtered back up to the DOJ leadership. They said, no, we'll handle this one separately. You keep doing what you're doing. And they handed it off to the Eastern District of Virginia to prosecute. Let's discuss the timing. After all the talk we've heard about the Justice Department refraining from taking actions around the midterms, which could influence them, you have this indictment coming less than three weeks before the midterms. Is there a Correct. message here? 
I would I would be hesitant to take, read too much into it. So the the unwritten policy, which we're referring to, is that they won't bring indictments that could possibly interfere in the election. And that certainly is probably why Robert Mueller hasn't uh, taken any action against Roger Stone, which everyone's pretty much assuming will be indicted sometime after the election for his uh, arguable criminal actions in the lead up to 2016. That's why he hasn't gone after anyone else, particularly uh, any of the other individuals who may or may not have been willingly coordinating with these Russian trolls. What he did, what he's limited this to, what, sorry, what the Eastern District limited it to was only the Russian nationals. They did not bring anything against the U.S. national, anything that could possibly influence the way people look at it. If it had been someone tied to the Trump campaign, if it had been a Trump associate, an advisor, even a peripheral player, they specifically limited it only to a foreign national with the idea in mind that that would not play upon people's views of the president and the party over which he uh, presides one way or the other. So, the Justice Department, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the FBI, and the Department of Homeland Security all joined together in a press release talking about foreign interference in U.S. elections being a threat to democracy. Is anything actually being done about the midterms and possible actions like this one? Well, I think that they're all kind of on higher alert than they were in 2016. I mean, look, even you know the Obama folks will say they got caught, you know, blind. They were blindsided in 2016. They didn't quite see it coming the way it did. Everybody knew that there's always you know attempts by foreign players to you know sow disinformation and to interfere in the elections. But what they saw in 2016 was on a level they'd never seen before, did not anticipate. They were caught flat-footed. And so, you know, even putting the politics aside and the president's commentary about whether or not there's actually meddling or whether it was with collusion or anything like that, the agencies involved, DHS, CIA, NSA, they're all very much on high alert watching out for this. Whether or not it's going to be enough remains to be seen. There certainly is a lot of concern. There's been a lot of uh, very good reporting about how the states haven't done enough to shore up their election systems. A lot of them continue to be vulnerable to exploitation and penetration. We'll have to leave it there, Brad. We'll pick up with this, I'm sure, again before the midterms. That's Brad Moss, a partner at Mark Zaid. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg.